Andrew Carnegie, the titan of the steel industry in the 20th century, was one of the richest people in United States history. He was also one of the most generous people in United States history. Early on in his career, he wrote a note-to-self memorandum. And it went like this. Man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately. Therefore, should I be careful to choose the life which will be the most elevating in character? To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts, wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time, must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at 35, but during the ensuing two years, I wish to spend the afternoons in securing instruction and in reading systematically. This quote comes from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, where Keller quotes that Carnegie did not obviously resign business in two years, and many of the very character-degrading effects he feared worked themselves out in his life. Annie Dillard, in one of her works, summarizes the whole of Carnegie's life like this. Although Carnegie built 2,059 libraries, a steel worker speaking for many told an interviewer, we didn't want him to build a library for us. We would rather have had higher wages. At the time, steel workers worked 12-hour shifts on floors so hot that they had to nail wooden platforms under their shoes. Every two weeks, they toiled an inhuman 24-hour shift and then got their sole day off. The best housing they could afford was crowded and filthy. Most died in their 40s or earlier from accidents and diseases. Andrew Carnegie is considered an American success story, a titan of industry. And yet in the end, he was consumed by his own wealth. He failed in the very stewardship that he envisioned for his own life. Over the past month, we've been in a series called Cheerful Giving. And where I want to end the series this morning is the place that Carnegie faltered. The place between reality and aspiration. It leads us to this question, what is good stewardship? And that question is really important because good stewardship is what leads us to a lifestyle of generosity. Good stewardship makes it possible for us to be the types of generous people that we've been talking about throughout this whole series. So to answer that question, what is good stewardship, we're going to look at the parable of what's called the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. And here we find practical guidance. This is going to be the most practical of all the sermons of this whole series in the hopes that it would bridge the gap between reality and aspiration. Three things this morning. Good stewardship arises from awareness, it arises from strategy, and it arises from perspective. First, good stewardship, it arises from awareness. Look again at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, who set me to be judge or arbiter over you. Now this man was coming to Jesus because the origins of this interaction go all the way back 
to Exodus chapter 18, where wise judges were installed to help Moses deal with issues among the people. And in Jesus' day, as issues like this, family issues, life issues arose, people were trying to interpret God's will in Jewish law, they would ultimately go to Supreme Court of Judaism in the first century or even just to kind of the local uh, rabbi in the town synagogue. So it would make sense as people began revering Jesus as a great rabbi that this man would come to Jesus. But what this rich man didn't understand is Jesus wasn't just your ordinary rabbi. He knows that the dispute is only the presenting issue, but there's something much deeper going on in the heart of the man, something that the man is not aware of. So in verse 15, Jesus said to them, meaning all who are listening, specifically the disciples, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That phrase, take care in the original Greek, it means to see to look at, to be aware of. The picture is like a soldier outside of a castle watching the horizon for any approaching invader. The covetousness, wanting what we don't have or wanting what we can't have, specifically acting in a disregarding way toward others. Jesus here is saying that, that wealth and the love of money can be like an invader that comes into our life and captures us and makes us a prisoner within ourselves. And this invader makes us believe that life is about the abundance of possessions. Think about how this plays out in our worldview here in the West. You know, no one around us would, would argue with most of the Ten Commandments. Certainly things like anger, adultery, lying, stealing are frowned upon. People are even open to the possibility that there is some organizing force in the universe that perhaps is favorable toward us. Yet there's one commandment amongst the 10 that's an outlier in Western culture. You shall not covet. Within an economy built on consumerism, coveting is not only acceptable, but it's needed and it's celebrated. So following Jesus in regards to our relationship with money, we're really swimming upstream here. We're going against the flow. Choosing contentment in Christ is possibly the single most significant spiritual struggle of our lives. And yet, it's the most underestimated. You know, in our caramel to define our existence by the numbers. It's perfectly normal to buy things that we don't need to buy. It's perfectly normal to constantly live in a state of anxiety about tomorrow and about provision for tomorrow. But what if any of that sounds normal? <laughs> you know, in your house, sometimes you look up and you notice there's a pile of shoes by the door. There's a pile of laundry on the couch. There's a stack of bills on the mantle. There's some books disheveled over in some other place. There's dust bunnies, you know, blowing across the floor. And you kind of scratch your head and you're like, how in the world did all of that happen? It's just become normal. We're not aware of it. 
Well, the rich man thinks he merely has a family dispute. But Jesus points to the deeper reality, an enslaving existence that's just become normal. While we might underestimate the invader at the gate, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus makes this clear. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus makes it clear there is a rivalry going on here. That we either choose to serve wealth or we choose to serve Jesus. Either wealth is king or Jesus is king. But what we're understanding here in Luke chapter 12 is that when wealth is king, security comes from an abundance of possessions which produces a life of enslavement. But know the gospel that comes from 1 John chapter 4. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. And we love because he first loved us. When Jesus is king, security comes to the cross in order to cast out all fear in our heart. In order that we might have not an abundance of possessions per se, but an abundance of life. Now, it'd be really wonderful if this was a one-time decision. We're like approaching the ballot of life and we need to choose our king as wealth or king as Jesus. But this is not just a one-time decision. It's a daily battle. But what we see here with this parable is the pathway to freedom is awareness. Awareness of what's actually happening in our heart. Awareness that if we follow Jesus in relationship to our money, we are going to be swimming upstream in our culture. Awareness that the pathway to freedom is a conscious decision to follow Jesus. So first, being aware of this struggle, it's the key to good stewardship. Secondly, good stewardship arises from strategy. Look again at verse 16. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. He thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns, build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now when it comes to money, what's happening in the heart eventually makes, it, makes its way to the surface of real life. That's what's happening here. The rich man's love for his wealth is shaping his practical strategy, which then therefore begs the question, if our loyalty lies with Christ, how would that influence our strategy? And I want to suggest three movements for that strategy that come from the book True Riches by John Cortines and Gregory Balmer. And these three movements are both biblical and common wisdom. Following this path makes it possible for us to live a generous life. The first is creating a cushion. 
A 2016 article in the Washington Post reported that the Federal Reserve discovered that 46% of Americans could not cover a $400 emergency. Whether that's a car repair, a water heater going out, a medical expense, etc. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6 through 8 says, Go to the ant, you lazy bones. Consider its ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, it prepares. It prepares its food in summer and gathers its sustenance in harvest. Experts recommend a $2,000 cushion to help with emergencies. It's kind of like the instructions that they give to parents on airplanes. You know, in the case of cabin depressurization, put the mask on yourself first and then help your kids. Being adequately prepared for emergencies as they come at us in life, it helps us to be prepared to be generous toward others. <clears throat> the second movement is to ditch bad debt. Now, there's certainly good debt, Securing a mortgage at a low interest rate, for example. But there's also bad debt. Experts typically approximate debt that's north of 7% tied to things like credit cards. That's considered bad debt. In a recent study of American debt that excluded mortgages, found this. 35% of Americans reported that they had been in debt most of their lives. 30% of monthly income goes to service debt. U.S. household debt swelled to 17.5 trillion last quarter, with credit cards making up 1.13 trillion of that amount, a new high for credit cards in American history. Proverbs 22.7 makes plain the impact. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. <laughs> and we've probably all been there. I mean, that's what bad debt feels like. It feels like. So we can go back to the Old Testament and find in God's law that within Israel, if people borrowed money from one another, they couldn't charge each other interest, and then debts would be forgiven every seven years. Man, that's a gracious God. <laughs> that's a gracious God in the Old Testament. And here's why this is important. One research study revealed that bad debt is the number one barrier to generosity. So the second movement is ditching. Third movement is to begin planning ahead. If you have a $2,000 cushion and you've ditched bad debt, you are among only 25% of Americans. But when you reach this point, this is where money becomes fun. This is where money can become a tool for good. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to want. Over and over again, we get this picture from Scripture that saving is biblical. A larger emergency fund in case you lose your job. Saving for your kid's college. Saving for retirement. Even when Jesus is speaking about the cost of discipleship, Jesus compares it to the builder of a tower or a king going to war. In both cases, planning ahead was crucial and treated really as common sense knowledge by Jesus. When you've accomplished, you'll come to an important question. 
What is enough? What is enough? This is the question the rich man of Luke chapter 12 never asked, never answered. And it's the overlooked question in our consumer-driven economy. What is enough house? What is enough car? What is enough for retirement? And yet as we prayerfully consider that question, you will then be able to happily give away the rest. Planning ahead, being strategic about what is enough is that third and final movement toward generosity. Third, good stewardship arises from perspective. Go again to verse 18. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. The great reformer Martin Luther said that humanity is like a drunkard who falls off the horse to the right, then gets back up and falls off to the left. I believe this to be true in regards to how we as a church, how the people of God have thought about money. I think it affects us in in two different ways. A perspective of materialism, but also a perspective of asceticism. Materialism, in a spiritual way, tells us that the wealthy are holy, or if you're holy, you should be wealthy. Post-World War II, somehow, someway, the American dream became conflated with the abundant life that Jesus offers And the thinking here is that if we're really following Jesus, everything is just supposed to work out in life. We're supposed to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. This is technically called the prosperity gospel. And even if we disregard the television evangelist with the slick back hair, the gold jewelry, and the private jet, to some degree, we have all bought into this mentality. In the West, material abundance is easy to conflate with spiritual abundance. And the perspective here are successful. Then on the other end of the spectrum or the other side of the horse, to use Luther's analogy, is asceticism. That the impoverished are holy or that the holy ought to be poor. This is the stuff of the desert fathers. Now, one Thanksgiving in college, I was reading the biography of Jim Elliott the missionary who gave his life on the mission field in Ecuador. And I got so pumped about being an overseas missionary, Red Lobster, and I told the server to hold the dressing on my salad because in my mind I was thinking, I just need to eat raw vegetables to begin preparing my body for the mission field. (laughs) I was listening to John Piper talking about buying one-way tickets to do missions when dying is gain. I was sold out to this vision. And at least in my mind, the truly righteous were the ones who gave up everything. And while these might be incredible examples of faith, for most of us, this is not our calling in life. 
And yet when we make these stories the ultimate exemplars, it can make the rest of us who are just working the nine to five feel less than as followers of Jesus and create anxiety about ever spending money on ourselves. So this perspective here is that the truly spiritual are the ones that suffer the most. What's at the center of both of those perspectives, materialism and asceticism? It's money, either the pursuit of it or the rejection of it. But what's not at the center is Jesus. And if we've made either affluence or suffering the center, we will miss the power of the gospel. Because the gospel really presents to us a third way to think about money. That money is a gift designed to deepen our life with Christ. Randy Alcorn compares it to water or fire. Sure, money can all do destructive things, but they can also be very life-giving. Kim King in her book, When Women Give, says it like this, money is simply a tool, right? How do we use this tool? There are only three options. We can save, we can spend, we can give. None of these choices is inherently good or bad. What makes money good or bad is its use. At the end of the parable, we find the rich man standing before the judgment seat of God. When you first hear the passage, it sounds like God is dropping the hammer of judgment. But there are two words here that I think offer us clarity. The first is this phrase, you fool. In Greek, it literally means to be foolish, to be senseless, to live as an inconsiderate person. And then God tells them, and you could have been rich toward God. You could have been living this rich life with God. I think here's what Jesus is telling the man. You missed it. You missed the point of money. It was a gift. You could have used it in all manner of ways, spending, saving, giving, but the ultimate point was to use it to live this life with me. The end of this parable is designed to give all of us perspective for this life and to think about it for the one to come. Like the rich man, all of us will give an account of our life before God. The central question, obvious, will be whether we trusted for salvation in this life. And certainly the grace of the gospel alone guarantees our eternal life with God. But even covered in that grace, there will be some sort of review of our life. Maybe to put it in modern terms, it'll be an after-action review. (laughs) And we'll sit down. Part of that review will include our relationship with money. And I thought about what that review will look like for me one day. And as Jesus reviews things with me, especially in regards to my relationship with money, I imagine him saying this. Remember when your stepdad taught you how to file your taxes when you were 15? I put that into his heart so that you could begin to understand your relationship to money. I know you remember that time that you and Amanda spent too much money over Christmas, your first year of marriage, and you had to return a sweater to the mall just to make ends meet. I know that was hard, but it was pretty funny. Ty, there were people that came to know me, and I look forward to introducing those people to you. 
You know, there was that night that you went to the mailbox during your days in seminary and discovered that your boss, the principal of your agency, had begun to send you quarterly bonus checks and your chin hit the floor. That was my grace. There were a few times when you trusted in a credit card instead of me and ran up a bill that haunted you for years. I know it was hard digging out of that hole, but my work on the cross ensured that that sin didn't define your life. When your daughter Grayson was turning five, you asked her what she wanted, and she said she wanted to go to Disney World. And because she was the middle child and never asked for anything, you dropped major bank to make that happen. You and Amanda were good parents. There were so many days when you woke up and opened the bank app and worried. If you could have seen things from my perspective, you would have begun those days in peace. Do you remember that time that I led you to give that certain amount and you saw the impact? That was really fun that we did that together. The gospel puts money in perspective. It's a gift. It's a gift designed to deepen our life with Christ. For Andrew Carnegie, for the rich man, for you and for me, money is a narrator for our life. What story do you want it to tell? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray this prayer that we've been praying throughout this series. We're grateful for all we have. It is truly a gift we never deserved. And though we have some goals and dreams, we're totally content, even in times of suffering, because our identity is secure in your son, Jesus. In every situation, we lean on you and trust in you for provision, although our own planning and hard work plays a role. Our heart and life are full of generosity, animated by love for those in need, even when it costs us dearly. In your name we pray, amen.